Welcome. So I want to just real briefly introduce our speaker tonight. Sky and I first met at a meeting at a magazine called Christianity Today that some of you may have heard of. It's located in the suburbs probably seven years ago or so. And we're in this room with all these pastors and they're polling us about what is important to pastors, what they should write about. And Sky was the only person in the room who was saying anything that I agreed with. The, he, he was the only one saying anything. I was like, yeah, I, I'm interested in that. Yeah, I would read that. And so afterwards, uh, Sky and I traded some emails. We got coffee and we were both associate pastors at suburban churches at the time. And, uh, and, I, and, and our conversations for me became very life-giving uh, because um, some of the uh, kind of ministry situation that I was in was, was sometimes tricky, was sometimes difficult. Um, and, and Sky was one of the very few people who could go, I totally understand that. I totally get why this is a hard environment. I totally get why you feel like you're beating your head up against the wall at times, because I feel the same way. Um, so Sky right now is uh, a teaching pastor at a church in the suburbs. He's also the managing editor of uh, Leadership Journal. So he does a lot of writing and speaking and stuff. So will you join me in welcoming Sky Jatani? And David introduced me by talking about our common issues in suburban ministry. And you notice that he's no longer in the suburbs beating his head against that wall. And I am. So it's great to be with you in the city, at least for a few days for this weekend. Um, although I'm not really beating my head on the wall because I'm not full-time on staff anymore. Got some relief there. But as David said, I've known him for years. Um, I've known about this church for years. I've interacted with Peter and Michael in various capacities over the years. And this is the first time I've actually gotten to be here. So I'm really excited just to spend these days with you. And let me give you a little rundown of how this is going to operate. Tonight and tomorrow night, what I'm going to do is sort of more of a seminar presentation. There'll be stuff up on the screen, uh, some time for interaction, more of a teaching environment. Sunday I'll be preaching, so no PowerPoint. I don't do that when I preach. It's too distracting for me. Um, But it'll be a little different in style. But what I want to do is talk about some things that I wrote about in my book. But these themes really impact us no matter where you are, whether you're in the suburbs or you're in the city. In fact, most of these themes are even now global in impact. They're not even limited to the United States. So tonight what we're going to focus on is the way that consumerism impacts Christianity. And then tomorrow night we're going to focus on how consumerism impacts community, specifically the church community. Now when I say consumerism, I want to differentiate that from consumption. Uh, There's some people on blogs that are irritated with me because they think I'm a hypocrite for writing and selling a book on consumerism because that's a consumer product. I get that. I understand it. But my my book and my, my shtick, if you will, is not a critique of consumption. And there's a significant difference between consumption and consumerism. Consumption is a behavior, and it's something we have to do. God has created us as contingent beings. We must consume resources in order to survive, whether that's oxygen or water or food. We need clothing. We need shelter. We need these various things. And the reality is, given the global economy, there's not much you can do in this world without being a consumer in some way, whether it's buying groceries or going out to eat or clothing or buying a book. There's just no way to avoid that behavior. And my book really has nothing to do with critiquing people's buying choices. 
Uh, don't worry if you read the book, you're not gonna be guilted about what kind of car you drive or what kind of clothing you wear or something like that. The book is really about consumerism. And consumerism is not a behavior, it's a worldview. It's a way of understanding yourself and the universe you inhabit. And that's really what we're talking about these next two days. So today what I want to begin with is looking at how does consumerism impact our faith, specifically, obviously, Christianity. And to begin, and I'm really hoping this is going to work. Hey, it works. We're going to do this in four parts tonight. And the, the first thing I want to talk about is identifying the problem. And I've given it away already in the, in the, the title here in Imagination, but uh, sometimes I find it helpful to get as far away from our immediate circumstances as possible and look at it from a totally different angle. So we're going to talk about Epcot Center at Disney World. You guys ever been there? Some of you? All right. The story behind Epcot Center is, is kind of interesting. The, the whole idea for Epcot began, of course, with Walt Disney. In 1960, well, it was 1955 when he launched Disneyland in California. And then a few years later, Walt had a grandiose idea to do something really different. And he sent, literally sent in former CIA agents into central Florida to start buying up tracts of land under false names and fake corporations because if anybody figured out that one corporation was buying up all the land, it would have driven the price up. So he literally hired the government agents to go in and start buying up 47 square miles of central Florida. And the reason he bought that tract of land is because he wanted to build what he called Epcot. Epcot stood for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Walt thought that all of society's ills could be solved if you could just build the perfect city on perfect urban planning principles where everyone was educated, where everybody had access to health care, where everybody had a job, where families were well taken care of. If you could perfectly engineer a community, you would have no crime, you would have no poverty, you would have no problems. And that's what he wanted to do with Epcot. So he was going to take the latest thinking in engineering and social development and science and combine it all into this utopian city. In fact, the other advisors to Walt Disney thought this idea was so outrageous that they referred to it as Waltopia. Utopia from the Greek meaning no place. Of course, they added the W to make it Waltopia. Just he thought he was insane. So Walt Disney, in the very last film he ever produced, it was only 14 minutes, lays out his vision for Epcot. And he unveils that the city is going to be built in central Florida. And this is what he said about it. He says, Epcot will always be in a state of becoming it will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future where people actually live a life they can't find anywhere else in the world. Walt had every last detail of this city figured out. He knew where the homes would be built. He knew where the skyscrapers were going to be, the sports arenas. He allowed space for churches and schools. He even knew how the garbage was going to be collected. He had thought through every last detail. But then something unexpected happened. Just weeks after filming this in 1966, Walt Disney died. And the managers of his company had a problem. They had 47 square miles of Florida wilderness and their founder's dream that had not yet broken ground. And they had inherited this thing and they thought, what on earth are we going to do with it? Well, you remember they called it Waltopia. They just didn't see it the way Walt did. 
So shortly after his death, the new president of the Disney company said that Epcot was not going to be abandoned as a project. They were still going to build it. But now it was, quote, being reconsidered from the point of view of economics, operations, technology, and market potential. It took years. It wasn't until 1982 that Epcot Center actually opened. And when it did open, what was it? You who've been there, what is Epcot? What's that? A giant ball, yeah, the geodesic dome. What is it? How would you describe it? It's an amusement park, right? It bears no resemblance to what Walt Disney's original vision was of an actual city where people would live and solve all the world's ills. It became an amusement park. Why did it become an amusement park? Well, because Disney's managers, the company managers, didn't share Walt's vision. They just couldn't conceive of the vision that he had laid out. And so, in a sense, they sort of ran home to mama. They ran home to the thing they did understand. They know how to do an amusement park. They'd done it before in Southern California. They did it in Florida with Magic Kingdom. And so, they took that original vision, and they couldn't abandon it because that would have been unfaithful to their founder's dream, but they adapted it to fit a framework that they understood. Comedian P.J. O'Rourke has remarked about Epcot Center. This is what he said. With Epcot Center, the Disney Corporation has accomplished something I didn't think possible in today's world. They have created a land of make-believe that's worse than regular life. (laughs) To this day, Epcot Center remains the least profitable amusement park in Disney's empire. No one really likes going there. Some of you might. You don't have to confess that. But... Interesting study of an original vision and dream that seemed somewhat idealistic but real to the founder. That dream being transferred over to a new group of people who just can't quite get their minds around it. And so they run home to mama and build the thing they do understand. I want you to hold on to that idea for a minute because we need to now talk about our context. Let's talk about the church. We have a founder, Jesus Christ, who lays out a vision for what his church is supposed to be. And we can talk about that maybe afterwards of what you think that vision is. But there's no doubt that over the last 50 some years, it's hard to see that, I'm sorry, it's in red, that line up and to the right says political and economic influence. There's no denying the fact that over the last half century, particularly Orthodox, conservative, evangelical Christians in North America, particularly the United States, have gained enormous amounts of political and economic influence. Uh, Three examples. At the 2003 Christian Bookseller Convention, which happened to be in Orlando, not far from Disney World, there were three key speakers that were pretty interesting. The first one, the Christian Booksellers Association is all the people who own bookstores that sell Christian merchandise in the U.S. They gather for this convention. The most remarkable speaker was President George W. Bush. Now, why would the political leader of the United States, the most powerful, quote-unquote, powerful person in the world, speak at a convention with a bunch of booksellers, people who sell Bibles and Christian bubblegum and bracelets? Well, it's pretty obvious whether you look at 2000 or 2004, George Bush would not have been elected president if it weren't for the support of evangelical Christians. And he was going to his constituents and basically thanking them for their political clout. The other uh, really high-profile figure at the 2003 CBA was Mel Gibson, Roman Catholic, many of you know that, but 
sort of Hollywood royalty. Why would he be there? Well, he was pitching his new movie, The Passion of the Christ, which was going to open that Easter. And he did an endgame around the marketing folks in Hollywood and went directly to churches and pastors and Christians and marketed the movie directly to them and ended up making $7 billion, one of the highest grossing movies in history. So that's just a brief example of how we have gained political and economic influence in this country. Christian books right now and merchandise is estimated to be a $7 billion industry. So it's grown exponentially. But at the same time, over the last half century, there's been an opposite trend, which is a decline in the moral and social influence of Christianity in our culture. And we could list examples of this all day long, but uh, I'll give you just a quote that I think captures this fairly well. Assuming I can find it. There's a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, which is written by Ronald Sider, in which he takes statistics gathered from folks like Barna and Gallup and these other polling organizations, and this is the conclusion of the research. They found that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. Where are divorce rates highest in this country? Anyone know? In the Bible Belt. If you attend church, statistically speaking, rates of domestic abuse among households that attend church are no different than households who don't. Charitable giving among people who attend church regularly, statistically speaking, is no higher than people who don't attend church. Uh, Objections to minorities moving into your neighborhood are just as high among highly churched areas as low churched areas. You go on and on and on with the statistics. Statistically speaking, conservative evangelical Christians in North America don't behave any differently morally or socially than people who don't attend church. So we have this paradox going on where over the last 50 years, the church has gained more and more cultural influence in politics and economics and less and less influence over the actual mores and morals and ethics of our society. So the question becomes, how do you explain this? Well, as I've gotten around the country over the last couple of years, particularly going to ministry conferences, I hear one of three explanations. Probably the most popular explanation is that we just don't have the right or enough resources We don't know how to impact our culture because we just haven't figured out the right way to do it. Well, I disagree. Again, Christian resources are a $7 billion industry. We have more resources than any Christians have ever had in the history of humanity. We have more books, more seminars, more churches, more scholars, more universities focused on the issue of bringing the gospel and its impact into our culture than any Christians have ever had. So I don't think it's that we lack resources. Is it that we're not educated enough? In other words, are we just stupid? I have a hard time believing that. Again, we have more access to more knowledge about faith, about the Bible, about history, about culture, about sociology. We have more knowledge than any other Christians in human history. And then the third explanation I hear, and this is the one that gets under my skin the most is that well we're just not dedicated enough 
particularly when I hear this at ministry conferences, I just, I can watch the shoulders of the men and women there just kind of go, oh, because basically what they're being told is you're just lazy. And if you would get off your tail and actually do something, we would be impacting this culture. And I have a hard time buying that one too, because as I've gotten around and I've met men and women who are in pastoral ministry, who are ordained, or even who are lay leaders in the church, the people I meet are really committed to Christ and his mission. And they want more than anything to see this world impacted by the kingdom of God. I don't think it's that we're lazy. So if it isn't that we lack resources, and it isn't that we lack education, it isn't that we're lazy, what is it? Well, I think this is where the Disney example helps us. Jesus Christ gave us a vision of what his kingdom is supposed to be and how we're supposed to impact the world, but my thinking is we actually don't share his imagination. I think that's the real issue. We want to do what Jesus has commanded us to do. That's why we're all here. But we just can't conceive of the kingdom that he depicts in the gospel and that his people begin to live out in the book of Acts. And so wanting to obey his commission, but not sharing his imagination, we do what Disney's managers did, and we kind of run home to mama. And what we end up doing is reinterpreting church, worship, mission, community, justice. We end up reimagining all those things through the only lens that makes sense to us, which is the one we've inherited from our culture. And what I believe that lens is, is consumerism. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next two days. How has consumerism actually warped our perception of all those things so that though we are seeking to be faithful to Christ, what we actually end up implementing isn't what he envisioned? And how do we awaken our imagination again to what he does want us to do? I'm going to skip over this. Now, I want to talk about three aspects of consumerism today and how they impact our faith since we've laid out the problem. And the first is commodification. These three things, I, kind of, I, I don't refer to them this way in the book, but I, I tend to refer to them as the unholy trinity of consumerism. And the first one is commodification. And this is really, really important because it reveals how we've shifted our view of God from that of creator to that of commodity, which explains the title of my book. So what is commodification? Some of you may uh, be economics majors or study that stuff, but I don't think there's any better example than eBay. On eBay, you can find virtually, well, that's their slogan, right? Whatever it is, find it on eBay. People have bought jars of dead cockroaches and collections of toenail clippings and French fries shaped like Nike swooshes. And some people have literally listed nothing for sale on eBay and people have bid on it. I don't get that, but that's what happens on eBay. So eBay really exemplifies what commodification is. Commodification, by definition is the act of assigning an exchange value to something so that it may be traded. Let me give you an example that's a little bit easier to get your mind around. Imagine a farmer in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, someplace like that, a subsistence farmer out in the rice fields. If that farmer grows just enough rice to feed himself and his family, that rice is not a commodity. Because that rice is valued because it is rice. The nutritional value inherent to that that item is why it's valued. They literally live off of its nutrition. 
But if that farmer grows more rice than he or she needs to survive on, that surplus rice becomes a commodity because that surplus rice can be exchanged for something else. It can be taken into town and traded for tools or clothing or whatever they want to trade it for. That surplus rice is a commodity because it isn't valued because it's rice. It's valued because it can be traded for something else. It's become a commodity. Now, what happens... uh, Let me make sure you got that. So value is not found in what a thing is, but in what it can be exchanged for. Okay, that's the definition of a commodity. Now, what happens when commodification is applied to something other than rice or toenail clippings? What happens when commodification is applied to people? Now, if I were in a smaller setting, I would just field things from you of of examples, but I'll, I'll give you some. Around 1950s, roughly, is when economists identify that the United States shifted into a consumer-driven economy. It's also around the 1950s that we start to see an increase in divorce rate. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. I don't want to oversimplify it. A lot more women entered the workforce after World War II and more autonomy for women, and and they could live without their idiot husbands who abused them and things, so they ended up divorcing. That's a factor. But the other factor is that we became a consumer society in the 1950s. And if my marriage or my spouse is not inherently valuable for who she is, but for what she does for me, then I'm justified in ending that marriage or exchanging that spouse for a new one who can provide for my desires better than the one I originally purchased. Marriage becomes disposable. The spouse becomes exchangeable because that person isn't valued for who they are inherently, but for what they do for me. Abortion, again, a very complicated issue that has to do with economics, society, all kinds of different ideas, but legally speaking, an unborn child has no value apart from the value the mother chooses to give or not give it. That human being is not valued for who they are inherently, but only for what value we assign to them or choose not to assign to them. Pornography, the commodification of sexuality, where I can divorce the human being or the the human dignity of that person and simply exploit them for their ability to stimulate me. Prostitution, the commodification of sex. Child sex slave trafficking, which is, as many of you probably know, an enormous problem in our world today, including the United States, is the commodification of people. You can go back in history and look at atrocities like the Holocaust or even slavery that so marked our country. Those things are only possible if you commodify people. If you say that this person has no inherent value except for what they can provide for me. Once you commodify human beings, you open the door to all kinds of atrocities. The commodification of people that led to things like the African slave trade and to the Holocaust, horrific as they are, the underlying issue of commodification of human beings is more prevalent today than it's ever been in human history. We can pride ourselves for all of our advancements in racial equality and for, you know, never again when it comes to the Holocaust, and yet the underlying issue is as prevalent today as it was then. That's what happens when commodification is applied to human beings. What happens when commodification is applied to God? 
What happens when God is no longer valued for who he is, but for what he can do for me? Well, a researcher actually studied this. Christian Smith is a sociologist at the University of North Carolina. And I'm going to find that quote for you. He did a five-year study of the religious lives of American teenagers. And at the end of it, he published a really fascinating book in which what he concluded is that the spiritual life of most American teenagers, including those who attend church regularly, is not actually Christianity, but what he calls MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. This is how he defines it. This is a quote. By moralistic, I mean being good and nice. By therapeutic, I mean being primarily concerned with one's own happiness in contrast to focusing on glorifying God, learning obedience, or serving others. Finally, by deism, I mean a view of God as normally distant and not involved in one's life, except if one has a problem one needs God to solve. In other words, God functions as a combination of divine butler and cosmic therapist. And perhaps most disturbing, he concludes, the reason why this is the belief system of most American teenagers in church is because it's what most American adults believe as well. Now, what happens when we make God into a commodity is rather than putting God at the center of the universe and submitting ourselves to his rule and revolving around him, we put ourselves at the center of the universe and we expect God to revolve around us. And this has enormous implications to the way we worship him. The word worship means literally to ascribe worth. Do we worship and ascribe worth to God for who he is or merely for what he can do for me? Because if it's the latter, we may be guilty of moralistic therapeutic deism, of reducing God to a commodity that we control rather than taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and surrendering ourselves to him. I'd like to take more time to unpack that in greater depth, but we're going to move on. So that's sort of the first thing, moralistic therapeutic deism. So what do we do about it? And I'm not going to do justice to this part. I think the, the critical element here is living in a world that wants to commodify everything, including God. What we need to do, particularly in the church, is recapture a sense of awe and wonder of who God is. In other words, all the forces in our consumer culture want to make God very small, a packaged commodity that we can consume and employ. What we need to do in the church is make God really, 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 really big. And one of the ways to do that best is, I think, through nature. Uh, Wordy world, that refers to, Henry Nouwen talks about how we tend to talk very flippantly about God as if he's just another product that we can market rather than uh, being silent before him. In the book of Job 38 to 42, if you know anything about the book of Job, for the first 37 chapters of that, Job and his friends pontificate on and on and on about what they think about God making all kinds of assumptions about him and how he operates. And finally, God shows up in, verse, in chapter 38 in the whirlwind, and Job ends up saying, he covers his hand, his mouth with his hand, and he said, before I spoke of you, but now that I see you, I am undone. When you imagine God, again, this is about the imagination because I don't think too many of us have literally seen him. When you imagine God in your mind's eye, 
Does the image of God you have humble you? And what sort of image are we projecting to the world around us, especially when he occupies our T-shirts and our bumper stickers and our bubble gum and our Bible covers? Are they in awe of the God we worship or have we trivialized him? Romans 1, 19 to 20 talks about how we have exchanged worship of the creator for worship of the creation. And then Paul talks about how this is really unacceptable because anybody with half a brain who looks out at this amazing world would see evidence of God's quote-unquote invisible attributes, his power and his sovereignty. And this is a really important piece for us and I think it's an overlooked discipline in the spiritual life. How much time do you spend out in nature just in awe of what God has created? Any rational being who looks up at a night sky and all the stars is going to feel their finiteness and their smallness. That's by design. I think what separates the human creature from all of their animals on earth is I don't think there's another species that looks up at the sky and goes, wow. Awe is a uniquely human experience. And according to Paul, we've been given that as a sign of our finiteness and God's grandeur. We need to recapture that as an antidote to the commodification of God. I'm going to skip that. All right, the second of the unholy trinity of consumerism is alienation. All right, I want you guys to do a little experiment. How many of you know where the shirt you are wearing right now was manufactured? What country it came from? You actually know? Corsica, France. And you know it was made there. You didn't just like buy it there. Like if we check that label, you're going to, wow, that's impressive. Okay. I didn't think they had manufacturing in Corsica, but okay. Anyone else know where their shirt was made? Okay. If you came with somebody, are you, do you back there? Turkey, Turkey right? Honduras. Did you just check or did you know that before? All right, see, that's what I want you to do. I want everybody, if you came with someone, or if you're comfortable with the person next to you looking down your back, can you check the label on your shirt and just inform the person of where it was manufactured? I don't know. I hate to admit it, I don't know. We could give away another book for whoever's got the shirt from furthest away. <laughs> or the closest. That would probably be harder, wouldn't it? What's that? Wow. All right. Anyone else actually made in the U.S.? Uh, a few. Okay. What you have just experienced is a lesson in alienation. There it is. Alienation is the act of separating a product from the means of its production. Any of you who've studied Marx, this is great Marxism stuff here. Not that I'm an advocate of communism, but the separating of a product from the means of its production, removing an item from the story and therefore the context that gives it definition and meaning. When you go shopping for clothing, for example, it probably never crosses your mind where that shirt came from. What do you think about when you're shopping for clothing? How much does it cost? Does it make me look good? Is it fashionable? Is it comfortable? 
those are the questions you tend to ask. But very few people ever ask, where did it come from? What's the story behind this item I'm about to consume? In, com- in consumerism and in alienation, what we care about is how a product makes us feel. Is it useful? Is it fashionable? Is it, a- is it affordable? But we give no thought to the story behind the item's production. It's as if these items just miraculously appear out of thin air and they just are on the rack and they exist merely for our pleasure. Now, this is not how it always used to be. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, most of the things that people used, whether it was furniture at home or the clothing they wore or the food they ate, most of the things that they consumed came from sources very close to them. You knew who grew the food that you were eating because... That was the farm outside of town, run by Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You knew where your clothing came from because you probably made it, or someone close to you did. You know where the tools came from because they came from the tool shop down the road. You knew all of this stuff. And you valued items not just because they were comfortable, or because they were affordable, or because they tasted good, or because they fit, but you valued them because you knew the story of their production. So you wouldn't just throw out that pair of shoes, you'd have them repaired. Because you know the man who works at the shoe repair store and his kids go to school with your kids and there's sort of a sense of, I'm going to keep the community together and I'm going to support things because I know the story behind the items I engage and consume. But post-industrial revolution, alienation came along. And you no longer knew where your stuff came from. And you no longer cared about it. You just wanted it to fit or taste good or whatever. So... This is what leads to alienation. Ultimately, all you care about is yourself. That product exists merely to satisfy my immediate need or desire. Its background, its context, its story, I don't care. So how does this relate to Christianity? I live in Wheaton, out in the Burbs. Wheaton College, they call it what, what they, the Harvard of evangelicals or Christianity. So I, I'm not a Wheaton College grad, so... Uh, that's kind of fun for me to pick on those folks. But anyway, I think these stats are pretty, pretty staggering. Incoming Wheaton College freshmen, one-third of them, and typically these are people who grew up in the church, not all of them, but a lot of them, one-third could not put the following in order. Abraham, the Old Testament prophets, the death of Christ, and Pentecost. One-third could not identify Matthew as an apostle among a list of New Testament names. One-third did not know Paul's travels were in the book of Acts, and one half did not know that Passover was recorded in the book of Exodus. And these apparently are the most educated Christian 18-year-olds in the country. Why? I mean, people have been harping about biblical illiteracy in the church for decades, but what's fueling this? Well, I think what's fueling it is alienation. You go to most churches nowadays and people are not taught the big story of the Bible because the preaching and the teaching ministries of churches are focused on, quote unquote, felt needs. Give me something, preacher, that I can use right now that's relevant to my life. Give me the three steps to having a healthier marriage. Give me the five principles of godly parenting. Give me the, you know, whatever it is. And so they pull out a verse here and a verse there. They take a proverb. They throw in a cute little illustration, a poem at the end. Everyone goes out feeling inspired. And it's biblical truth. And a lot of times it is biblical truth. 
but it's alienated biblical truth because it's extracted from the story that actually gives it meaning. And I think this is what we've done with God. Jesus Christ only makes sense in the context of the story of Israel. You cannot understand Jesus properly without understanding the Old Testament. The only reason one could argue God spent all of those years, centuries and centuries, dealing with Israel was to set the stage for people to understand the Messiah of Israel in its proper context. We cannot properly understand God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church, its mission and its purpose apart from the story of Scripture that gives it definition. And so when we alienate the church or worship or God or mission or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or you pick it, if we alienate any of those things from the story that gives it meaning, we end up imposing upon it a different criteria of value, which is, does it help me? Does it fit my lifestyle? Is it useful right now? We make God into a product. We pick up off the shelf and we go, okay, I've got this problem, Jesus. You're going to fix it for me. We treat him like he's the WD-40 duct tape combo pack and all you need to fix just about anything, right? So that's alienation. So how do we overcome that? Well, I think it's a return to biblical preaching and gee, is that a loaded term? Um, from morsels to meta-narrative, Scott McKnight, some of you know Scott McKnight maybe, North Park, uh, great guy, friend of mine. He talks about morsels of Scripture, how we, we tend to extract verses and we put them on our wall or on our mirror or whatever, and, and no context, and we just kind of hang on to that promise. What we need to do is, not that that's always bad, but we need to return to the meta-narrative, meaning the big story, so that people understand. The, I, I do this when I teach classes occasionally at Wheaton College. I'll ask, there's 20, 30 students in the class, I'll ask somebody to tell me the story of Star Wars, the whole six-part saga. Tell me the story of Star Wars in 60 seconds or less. And invariably, there's some nerd who can do it, right? And then I ask the students, okay, somebody in this class, Wheaton College again, tell me the story of Scripture in 60 seconds or less. And I have yet to have a student who's been able to do that. Do you know the meta narrative, the big story that gives every other of the small stories context and meaning? If not, you might be a victim of alienation. We can sell you a product to fix that too. So, the other one, the other one is, uh, and I don't want to get into this. Use is more for kind of pastoral audiences. But Caruso is the Greek word for preach, and didasco is the Greek word for teach. We don't often differentiate what teaching is from preaching, but there's a significant difference. And I'll leave you hanging. We'll talk about that downstairs if you want to. Okay, the last part of the unholy trinity of consumerism is branding. Uh, anyone in marketing here? Okay, one thing I want, this is a disclaimer. I am not against commodification. I am not against alienation entirely. And I am not against branding. My beef is when we apply these things to God. So as I talk about branding here, I don't want anybody to start squirming in their seat like, oh my gosh, I'm engaged in the devil's work because I work for a marketing company or something. It's not what I'm saying. I'm going to put some images up on the screen and I want some of you to just shout out the first things that come to your mind when you see these images, okay? Okay.
Okay, one more. Super size. Okay. How do you feel when I tell you that the words that came out of your mouth, or the words that at least occurred in your mind, were not put there by, you didn't choose those words. They were actually implanted there by someone who probably is on Madison Avenue or somewhere else. That your brains were actually programmed to say the words that you just said, without your own consent even. That is branding. Branding is a collection of perceptions in the mind of the consumer, often but not always linked to a graphic image or name. Branding is not a logo. It's not the clever script of Disney's signature. Branding is something that exists in the realm of your brain, in your mind, in your imagination. It's a set of feelings and instincts, impulses, that have been implanted there by very smart people so that when you see a logo or when you hear a name or when you see a product, you automatically feel a certain way about it. I'll give you an example. Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson, the guy who started Virgin, he started that in 1971. It was a record store in London. Today, the Virgin brand is on over 300 different products and, and business areas. I mean, there is everything from Virgin spacecraft, Virgin Airlines, Virgin wedding gowns, Virgin cell phones, Virgin cola, and of course Virgin Records, and a whole bunch of others. And Branson is very bold in saying that Virgin's primary business is not any one of those products. It is branding. Because once you've caused the consumer to have a positive emotional association with the Virgin brand, you can stick that logo on virtually any product and they'll be predisposed to have a favorable opinion of it and buy it. That's branding. Uh, one branding expert said this, a brand is the most valuable real estate in the world because it is a corner of the consumer's mind. And once you own it, man, that's powerful. I'll give you another example. There was uh, I think it was Stanford who did a research experiment in the last few years with children. They took five-year-old children and did a taste test with them, but they used generic foods like bananas and milk and carrots, and they wrapped some of them in plain white wrappers and then the identical products in McDonald's wrappers, and they asked the children which one tasted better. Surprise, surprise. Across the board, over and over again, the kids said that the McDonald's wrapped food tasted better. And these researchers were actually able to prove that McDonald's branding chemically altered the children's brains so that the food literally tasted better. Because when they saw the McDonald's logo, it released certain chemicals in the brain so that when they tasted that apple, it literally tasted different than the apple that was in the white wrapper because of the receptors in the brain. Isn't that kind of creepy? Does this creep anyone out? It should. I find it very creepy. And you people who are in marketing, you're creepy people. <laughs> uh, let me give you another example that uh, you probably are all aware of. The demographic of this room reveals you probably are aware of it. Those very well-known Mac versus PC commercials. How does the commercial go? Hi, 
I'm a PC, right? And the guy is kind of dopey looking and out of touch and balding and chubby and awkward and all that. And then the other guy, it's, hi, I'm a Mac. And he's young and trendy and comfortable and type of person you'd want to go out and have a drink with and hang out, right? Well, what's really being communicated there? What are they really selling? Yeah, class, image, identity. Uh, Bill Gates was really ticked about those ads. <laughs> and I, I really got to find this quote for you because it's, it's too good to pass up. He, uh, he did an interview with Newsweek where he was calling on Apple to withdraw those ads. Here he is. Okay. In Newsweek, Bill Gates says this. He says, I don't think the over 90% of the population who use Windows PCs think of themselves as dullards or the kind of klutzes that somebody is trying to say they are. Now, Bill Gates is a smart guy, and he makes a really huge error in that statement. In that ad, are they saying that PC users are klutzes and out of touch and dopey? What does he literally say? I'm a PC. He doesn't say I'm a PC user. He says I'm a PC. The other guy says, hi, I'm a Mac. Bill Gates makes the mental leap in his imagination, I would argue, that what they're really communicating though is about image of the people who use a PC or who use a Mac. That's branding. We all make that same jump as well. Even though literally they're saying, I'm a PC, I'm a Mac, we realize the real message is about identity. Apple doesn't sell iPods. Apple doesn't sell laptops and desktop computers. Apple sells image. They're selling identity. And that's why one significant reason why they are so successful. So branding is about identity. Now, where is all this going? And I'm going to wrap up here in a few minutes. But uh, I'll tell you where it's going. We're going to skip over this little experiment, even though it's fun. Um, Benjamin Barber, brilliant guy, says, if a brand name can shape or even stand in for identity, then to figure out who you are, you must decide where and for what you shop. The way we construct identity in a consumer culture is by the brands we purchase, by the brands we display, by the things we wear, by the car we drive, on down the list. That's how we construct identity. That's why we, Ford spends millions of dollars in Pizza Hut marketing to preschoolers. Preschoolers can't buy a Ford and they can't order a pizza. But if a preschooler at a very formidable age has a positive mental association with the Ford brand and Pizza Hut, when they do get to the age where they can spend their money, they'll be predisposed to spend it on those products. Brands are the new religion. They supply our modern metaphysics, imbuing the world with significance. Brands function as complete meaning systems, cults, are a rich and legitimate source of insight for the creation of brand worship. Brands function in our culture today and occupy a role that religion once occupied, which was to give the individual a sense of meaning and identity. And when you buy a certain product, like an Apple computer or a Volkswagen or whatever your product is, the other thing you're doing is you are entering, as Seth Godin would say, a tribe, a community of people. I'm a Mac guy now. I'm a Volkswagen driver. 
So it gives you a sense of community and inclusion and all those things that religion used to get. So here's the big question. I hope it's on here. If brands have become religions, have religions become brands? Think about it. How do people express their commitment to Christ in our culture today? We already talked about statistically speaking, it ain't through living moral lives. Bumper stickers. Jewelry. T-shirts. One guy said, I don't know if I put it on here, maybe I did. Um, no, I didn't. One guy said that to be a Christian in North America means now that we've taken some of the money we used to spend at Walmart and now we spend it at the Christian bookstore where we buy our office supplies in Jesus' name. That's conversion in North America today. And unfortunately, it's a very cynical view, but there's some truth to it. One in Three Trinity is a Christian uh, clothing company. They sell things like Christian t-shirts and women and men's shirts. And they also have this. It's really hard to see in here, but it's an energy drink. Trinity 3-in-1 energy drink, or 1-in-3 energy drink, and you can't see it there, but on the can it says, infused with the fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) Now, on their website, this is what really kind of irks me. Oh, I'll skip it, because it's just going to distract us, but... On their website, they basically say that their mission as a company is not just to sell Christian merchandise, but to strengthen Christians in their walk with God. Now, if you think that you can strengthen your relationship with God by a t-shirt or by drinking literally the Holy Spirit, that's pretty wacky. But in a lot of regards, that's what we've bought into once Christianity becomes a brand. Remember, this I showed you this graph earlier, it's a $7 billion a year industry. So I think a pretty significant case could be made that most Christians in North America live out their faith and express their identity as a Christian through the consumption of Christian merchandise. We have made Christianity into a brand. Now, what's the alternative? Well, it sounds cliche, but I think it's simply love. What did Jesus say? All people will know you are my disciples if you love one another, right? Not if you wear t-shirts and chew my gum. Let's talk about circumcision. I once did a four-part sermon series in my church on circumcision, and when I told the worship teams that that's what I was going to do, they were really uncomfortable, but I think it's important. Circumcision, if you know much about the Old Testament, was the original religious brand, God commanded Abraham and his descendants to circumcise, of course this is related to male, males only, uh, to be circumcised, and that, that that mark became the identifying mark of, of being Jewish. And of course we're talking about a patriarchal male-dominated society, so I'm sorry women, but you know, for the cultural context, that's what it was. To be Jewish was to be circumcised. That, that was it. But then you get to the New Testament, and Paul gets all bent out of shape about this, right? In Romans 2, he goes, he really breaks bad on being circumcised. And he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. He says, if you obey the law and you're uncircumcised, it's as good as being circumcised. 
But if you're circumcised and you break the law of God, it's as good as being uncircumcised. In other words, what Paul is simply saying here is, I don't care what you wear on the outside. It's the inside that counts. And then in Galatians, he says it isn't, he repeats himself a little differently. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, circumcision is really not a hot button issue in the church anymore, at least not in my church. I assume it's not here either. But consumerism is a huge issue in our church, and expressing our identity as Christians merely through external branding is a massive issue in the church today. And what we need to do, both ourselves and in the people who follow us, especially if we're in leadership, is model for them that the way we express our identity as Christ followers is not through any external marker or branding, but it is through love. That is what differentiates us as a person that belongs to Jesus Christ. So I want to wrap it up, but what you can really uh, summarize this as a commodification, reducing God to a commodity, making him a small, I think the antidote to that is silence. To shut our mouths once in a while and stand in awe of God the creator. Silence in our worship sometimes. Silence in our private times with God. Silence as we engage creation and are humbled by what we find there. Alienation, the idea of separating God from the story that gives him meaning and definition. The antidote there, scripture. Immersing ourselves in scripture, not just in the minutiae to figure out specific verses, but the big story of scripture, Genesis to Revelation. And dwelling in that story with our imaginations. And then branding the temptation to make our identity as a Christian merely an external brand. The antidote to that, I think, I said it's love, but another way of putting it is service. That we express who we are in Christ for love for one another. Silence, scripture, service. Those need to be marking our lives in ever-increasing ways if we are going to combat the pressures of consumerism in our culture that want to form us and shape us and warp who we are as followers of Christ. I'm going to wrap it up there. Let me pray, hand it over to David, and then I think we're going to gather afterwards if anyone wants to stay and talk more. Let's bow. Our Lord, we know that the struggle we have with syncretizing our faith with the culture is certainly nothing new. It's happened from the beginning. And from the beginning, you have promised to draw near to those who draw near to you. So I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that you give us wisdom, not just to discern who you are, but wisdom enough to see who we are and how the culture around us has shaped us and warped us. Fill us with awe and wonder. Inspire us with the story that you've given to us in Scripture. And may our identity be one that is an internal communion with you that reveals itself in love for others. We pray these things would mark us and all of our brothers and sisters in this place as we try to advance your mission. We depend on your grace, your favor in all of these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.